Welcome to Try and Days the Journey, conversations with publisher Chris Milligan. I am Bruce DeTorres. With us is Richard Spence, a professor of history at the University of Idaho, where he has taught since 1986. He is the author of Boris Savinkoff, Renegade on the Left, Trust No One, The Secret World of Sidney Riley, Secret Agent 666, Aleister Crowley, British Intelligence and the Occult, and numerous articles in Revolutionary Russia, Intelligence and National Security, International Journal of Intelligence and Counterintelligence, The Historian, New Dawn, and other publications. His trying day book is Wall Street and the Russian Revolution, 1905 to 1925. Richard and Chris, it's great to be with you both. It's great to be here. Thank you, Richard, very much for, for coming on. I, I do appreciate it. Uh, you, you've been looking into some interesting areas. Um, you know, I remember when I first came across Sidney Riley, uh, he, he wrote a book about himself. And I said, gee, this is kind of interesting, you know, considering, you know, my, my daddy had been in intelligence. And so, and, and then, you know, uh, I came across Mr. Sutton and, and, and he wrote some very interesting things and you wrote some things about him. So, but first I'd like to get into British intelligence and the occult. What, what do you have to say about that? Well, it's not just British intelligence and the occult. It tends to be a, a, a wide ranging connection between what we roughly think of as intelligence, that is the agencies and people who work for them, whose job is to basically go out and safeguard secrets and to steal secrets. And the connection between those two things, the, the connection between occultism and intelligence is roughly that whole issue of secrecy. So it goes back to what occult means. Okay, generally, if you go back and you, and that has all kinds of spooky connotations to it. You now the occult is generally identified with, you know, most commonly devil worship. There you go. You talk about the occult, you got guys in hoods sacrificing virgins somewhere in a cave. But all occult actually means is hidden, something which is secreted away and therefore either needs to be safeguarded or uncovered. So if you tend to look at the activities of people that we call occultists, Aleister Crowley is a good example of that, their whole lives revolve around trying to discover these secrets, to reveal the secrets hidden within the occult, but also then to sort of re-encode them. In, in a particular way, because one of the things that tends to be a general rule of what we call occultism, those who go searching after these secrets, is that the secrets only belong to the worthy. They're not for everyone. There are only certain people who really know. See, that always gives the element of exclusivity to this type of thing. We're going to have a club, but only you can join. So occultists are always about uh, uncovering secrets and then trying to rebury the secrets. And really, intelligence agencies do almost exactly the same. In fact, not almost exactly, they do exactly the same. They are going to safeguard things that are occulted, the secrets of the state, tradecraft, the names of agents, etc. And they're always attempting to uncover what they have on the other side. So it's actually one of those things that, that Crowley himself noticed early on he actually makes this reference is that you know, uh, you know secret service work is a, is, a, is a great sort of preparation for for occult activity and, and vice versa because you're really doing pretty much 
the, the same sort of thing. And I think it's one of the things that you can see, it, it's this undercurrent that runs through it. You can see it in American intelligence in the 1950s and 60s, and God knows probably today, in things like MK Ultra, now, which is all about mind control, we tend to call it, try, trying to essentially understand the architecture of the human mind with the purpose of then being able to, well, once you understand how something is put together, you understand how it comes apart and can be reassembled. But there's always been this interest. If you sort of look around the edges, if you look at things like remote viewing programs sponsored by the military and intelligence agencies, the idea, there's always been this willingness, at least, if not publicly, then more secretly, for the intelligence community to at least you know probe around into the uh, into the realm of what we think of as the occult because i mean here's the question what if magic works yeah what if it actually does and and here again always go back he's always the reference point and go back to crowley's definition of magic this is another one of those things i think is very important and i'm going to paraphrase it here but i think i'll get it close Crowley's definition of magic, which he likes spelling with a CK on the end, was that it was the art and science of causing change to occur in conformity with will. Yep. In other words, it's mind over matter. This idea that through an application, through, through focused will, through desire, through, through what I call something working on now, magical intent, that you have to have the intent for these things to work, you can you can cause change at least up to the point that anything is capable. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and if you look at like, you know, uh, initiation things and masonry and other things, a lot of it is a, a form of, of mind training of, of quote unquote mind control. I want to run past my posit of basically what intelligence is. Okay. Uh, to me, the, the first thing that intelligence does is, is you take notes, okay? And that's basically what you're doing. You're, you're taking notes. You're, you're looking uh, first at all the publicly available material. And then if you can get into private material, um, you look at that and take notes, okay? And then uh, after you get past the note-taking stage, then you get into actions that you try and do to uh, influence outcomes of, of those actions. And so it, it, to me, that's basically what I see in, as intelligence. What, what's your definition of intel, uh, the intelligence agencies and how they operate? Well, again, it goes back to the, the safeguarding of what are considered to be state secrets. Or in, in, It's all about information. Right? As you noted here, you, know, you you can find information in all kinds of places. That's why we talk about signals intelligence, human intelligence. And, you know, human intelligence is where you collect information from people. Field agents who go out and they recruit sources. They recruit assets. And they can recruit them in any number of ways. You can get, they can come over for ideological reasons. They can come over for greed. It's because you're paying them. They can also work for you because you compromise them and force them to. It doesn't really matter. The matter is you, you've got sources of human intelligence. Then you've got open source intelligence, which you were talking, you know, you just read the newspapers. There's a very interesting things you can find if you begin to collect information and then you start to correlate the information that you have. So ideally you get information from all of these sources. 
you know, you're, you're reading people's mail, you're listening to their phone calls, you're, you're intercepting electronic transmissions, you're reading newspapers, you're reading books, you're reading scientific journals, and then you also recruit an, an array of human agents in areas, and you're at some point, theoretically, all of this information is being collated and analyzed. This is why one of the basic jobs that you have in intelligence is an analyst. Okay. That's what people, you know, people think you're going to join the CIA, you're going to be a spy. You're probably going to be an analyst, which means you're going to be looking at all of this stuff that comes in from the various sources. And your job is to make some kind of narrative out of it. Right, right. That, that was my uh, father's job. He was uh, in research and analysis from uh, COI to OSS to G2 to uh, CIA. And and he actually uh, quit them because he didn't want to be involved in some of their operations. And now I, I want to get, because, you know, you're a very erudite guy and, and looked into lots of things. I, I'd like to uh, ask you about um, my posit about how, how the world works. Okay. We have sovereign countries. And, and to me, I, I see something I call it the secret societal system kind of above and beside and underneath and around. Uh, the sovereign countries, and it's able to to reach into these these uh, countries and uh, do things. I mean, one reason I'm doing what I'm doing is my father, you know, he says, he said, Vietnam War is about drugs. There's these secret societies behind it. And then he said, and communism is all a sham. These same secret societies are behind it all. It's all a big game. What's your thoughts on what my daddy said? You know, let's go back a little ways as to how I got into all of these health, unhealthy subjects, as some might call it. Um, <laughs> you know, how, how do you get into things like espionage and occultism and secret societies? I mean, what's the matter with you? Uh, and my answer to that is that, well, I, I went to one thing from another. So what I basically started out at, I would say, was a, you know, I, I viewed myself as a kind of modern Russian historian. I mean, modern European history was, you know, 20th century and in Russian history in particular interested me. And, you know, when you begin to look at Russian history, pretty much everything is a conspiracy in one form or another. I kid you not, or at least more, more obviously so than you might find elsewhere. I think that's the kind of difference. But it was, I, I can give you an example. Uh, the guy that got mentioned, the first book I ever wrote was a biography of uh, a seemingly obscure Russian revolutionary figure by the name of Boris Savinkov. Okay, so people have heard of Lenin, they've heard of Trotsky, they've heard of Stalin, maybe they've heard of Kerensky, but I bet almost nobody's ever heard of Savinkov. And yet, if you go back to 1917 or even years before that, he was every bit as important a figure in the Russian revolutionary and political landscape as they were. So one of the things that intrigued me when I started researching him in the 1980s was why has this guy basically been excluded from history? I mean, if, if you look at all these key points, he was there. One of the simple answers was that he tended to bite every hand that ever tried to help him, betrayed everyone, uh, and that therefore leaves nobody who wants to say anything good about you when you're dead. But the one thing I noted, in the, the thing that was a kind of a little awakening point, is that it, at one point in the whole revolutionary ferment in Russia in 1917, before the Bolsheviks have taken over, but after the Tsar has fallen, Savinkov is a fairly important figure. At one point, he's the deputy minister of war in the provisional government. That's what I meant by the fact that he held fairly important positions. And one of the members of the Romanov family, not the czar, but one of the czar's uh, cousins, 
uh, was essentially being held prisoner in this town that Savinkov was pretty much the, the commandant of. The Grand Duke, the Grand Duke Alexander in this case, came to see Savinkov. You remember, it, this, up to this point, has described himself as a socialist revolutionary. And the Grand Duke basically asked him to help him, the Grand Duke, and his family get out of this town to get away, to escape. And Savinkov's basic question was, so why should I help you do that? You're an enemy of the people. And he goes, well, I'm also a, a brother Freemason. And I appeal to you as a brother in the craft to assist me as you were sworn to do. And Savinkov did. He arranged for Alexander and his wife to get out of town. Now, I'd never really run across that before. I mean, I'd run across mentions of Freemasonry and secret societies here or there. But here was this whole... It, it was a situation that if you didn't understand that relationship, it made no sense whatsoever. Two people seemingly in opposing political camps, and one will help the other against everything else because of their common membership in this organization. So that's what made me started, start paying attention to who among all of these people that Savinkov ran into and others – who was ever mentioned were Freemasons. Was this a Grand Orient Lodge, do you know? Yeah, it was. Um, almost all the lodges in Russia in this period were extensions of the French Grand Orient Lodge. In fact, the biggest Masonic organization in Russia was a thing called the Grand Orient of the Peoples of Russia, which was very political. Most of the people who belonged to it were politicians, but also a lot of important businessmen. I mean, it's not big. The Grand Orient of the Peoples of Russia had maybe a few hundred members, but those few hundred people were the elite, the business and political elite from all different political spectrum uh, in, in an empire of 170 million people. Suddenly, these people were very, very influential in, in terms of what was going on. So you start paying attention to things. You know, again, it's like paying attention when something comes up over and over again. Something's mentioned once, not important. Twice, maybe not too much. Three times, start paying attention. And then if it comes up four, five, six, seven, you're up to a dozen or 20 times, then you should follow that thread where it leads you. So that's that's how I got into these subjects. And, and they all have, link have together. Have done yet? <laughs> Yeah, it's, it is it is a lot of fun. I mean, one of the ways that I've described it is it's like a jigsaw puzzle. But with a normal jigsaw puzzle, you've got, well, when you get a picture on the box, it tells you what it's supposed to be. No mystery there. And the other is you've got edge pieces. And, you know, the first thing you go looking for when you put together a, a jigsaw puzzle is you get the edge pieces and then you fill in the middle. Investigating this kind of history or any history is like putting together a jigsaw puzzle of which, one, you have no idea what it's a picture of. You might have some vague idea. And two, there are no edge pieces. It extends almost infinitely and in different sections often into different areas. So you never know where it's going to end or exactly where it is that it's, it's going to lead you. And that can make it all tremendously frustrating. It also makes it fascinating. So, you know, I'm hooked. I'm a junkie for this sort of stuff, you could say. Yeah, well, you know, when, when I started looking at it, you know, after my daddy told me some stuff and I started reading books and all that stuff onto it and looked into it, I, I found that, you know, we're, we're basically dealing with uh, 
uh, multi-generational um, units, okay? Um, when you're dealing with a secret society, generally you have uh, legacy members and, and stuff like that. They've been uh, members of it for generations. And then you have a, a, what I call circles, occult circles. And in there you have a multi-generational uh, milieu. And then you also have, uh, sad to say, uh, pedophilia, which also tends to be multi-generational. Uh. And, and I find these people involved in all three of these milieus, you know? So um, it makes me wonder, you know? Well, I think so, there are different, oh, go, go ahead, go ahead. Well, well uh, Anthony Sutton, you know, he uh, did some very interesting work uh, about uh, the Wall Street Revolution. And uh. he was, you know, one, one thing I found very interesting too, in, in 1917, Russia became the largest oil producer on the planet, uh -huh. okay? And, and one thing of that, that, you know, the revolution there, it kind of takes, you know, we call them communists, so they aren't involved in the capitalist system anymore. So it kind of takes them off the market, you know, to a certain extent. But uh, Sutton's work, uh, does, does it stand up to uh, uh, your scholarship? Well, you know, Sutton had a limited amount of material to work with. So he's writing mostly in the 60s and 70s. I ran across his book, I, you know, probably when I was starting in the whole Savinkov thing, because I was interested in anything that dealt with the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, and I think my first reaction to Sutton's book was that, well, you know, usual, I've never really heard of this before. You know, this is, this is kind of odd. And there wasn't a lot of, you know, the whole thing in historical writing is you try to nail everything down. You know, you, you want to have, you know, you, when you're looking for absolute proof of stuff that doesn't offer you absolute proof, but nevertheless, you want, you want to try to correlate as much evidence as you can. Okay, not just to go for one person's word on something. You know, it, it's one person says it, yeah, okay, one person said it. On the other hand, if you find half a dozen different people in different places and times saying pretty much the same thing, again, you would want to pay attention. While I can't say I was an immediate convert when I ran across his book, it, you know, started wheels turning. And then what would happen is other research went along, I would come across things that would remind me of what it was that Anthony Sutton had said in his book on Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution. And as time went on, especially when I got into Riley, okay, Riley, who spent World War I as a, as a businessman, which is what a lot of people don't understand about him. They think he's James Bond, which he never was. He's, he's an international con man and businessman. Those two things sort of the same thing. And then I began to find that some of these things would come up. And that's really what I decided I wanted to dig into this, dig into it deeper. I think that in that book, Anthony Sutton, given the material he had available to him at the time, while I think he was sort of groping in certain areas, and, you know, in a few details, he went off in the wrong direction. He was basically right. He'd, he'd seen something that was really there. And what he'd seen is that there was, despite all apparently the, the completely incompatible political stance you'd find between what we think of, real, of, of, of Wall Street and, and Bolshevism, that there was this kind of, at another level, a sort of practical connection. 
that it's you know you've, you've got lenin who once quipped something to the point that you know that uh, the capitalists will sell us the rope that we eventually use to hang them with and why will they do that because they're making money off of it in the meantime and it's a and then when you began to look closely at this you would find out that there were people early on 1917 18 you know right after the revolution there were there were prominent figures on the american in the, in the Wall Street elite, people like uh, William Boyce Thompson, Raymond Robbins, no small potatoes, not minor figures, who thought that the Bolsheviks were just the greatest thing since sliced bread, had nothing but positive thinking. They were the true representatives of Russian democracy, and most, most clearly the thing that would always come across is that these were people who we, we could, at some level, do business with. And then that would bring things in a little closer. So you begin to look at that, and then you start looking at people like John Reed. And I don't know if John Reed is in the household name anymore. John Reed was uh, an American socialist. He was an American Marxist well before 1917. Also a journalist, went to Russia in 1917 to cover the revolution, wrote a whole book about it, a very glowing tribute to the Bolsheviks called you know, 10 Days That Shook the World. You know, which is still on university reading lists everywhere, even though it's an utterly, I mean, it's an interesting account, but keep in mind, it's utterly biased. Reed is not, is clearly has a, a side which he is taking in that case. So Reed generally is portrayed as, uh, you know, one of the great American Reds. You know, there's a whole movie called Reds, which is all about Warren Beatty playing, playing John Reed. But when you began to look closely into what John Reed was doing, find out that in the same period that he's kind of working for the Bolsheviks as a propagandist, he's, he's also working very closely with the representatives of the American International Corporation. Even Trotsky viewed him as a kind of liaison to American economic interests that we can make deals with. So that's one of those things that if anybody's interested, I, I uh, wrote an article about that was published years back called John Reed American spy, in which part of my exploration is to whether or not Reed was, if not simultaneously acting as a double agent for the U.S. State Department, as he was working for as a kind of agent for American economic interests, which he was. Trotsky actually wanted to have Reed become Soviet ambassador to the United States, which would have been a very interesting relate. That that got killed off. On both ends of the spectrum, there were people among the Bolsheviks who didn't like that idea because Reed was an American, and there were people in the U.S. end who thought that he was a treacherous radical, but then there were all people in between who thought he was a very useful man. Now, that even led me off into a whole different sort of spy story about a former American intelligence officer named Weston Estes, who in 1920 is actually sent off in this effort to try to rest, to try to get Reed out of Russia. This is kind of interesting. It means that, in essence, a, an American intelligence asset, suitably disguised as an independent filmmaker, is sent with full knowledge of military intelligence and the State Department into Russia to find some way to get Reed out. And the reason they wanted to get him out is that he was basically their guy in this respect. So the whole thing becomes, you think there are two sides, I think as you mentioned before, but then as you begin to get closely, you realize that there's not really two sides. There, there are people in both, both camps. Beneath all of this antagonism, there is a constant dialogue which is taking place. It, I think it's sometimes what's referred to as back channels. 
Okay. The idea is that even even in the worst situations, you always try to keep some back channel open. The reality though, is that these these aren't really back channels. They're the front channels. That's where all the important stuff is actually taking place. Those are where the agreements are made. So uh, a few years down the road in 1921, there are a variety of Americans, some of which were spies, some of whom weren't, who were been imprisoned. They've been arrested in prison for espionage in Soviet Russia. And in 1921, they get out. There's a deal made and they're released. And the guy who makes this deal it's not really the State Department that makes the deal. It's not anybody else. It's, it's Herbert Hoover, all in connection with another private individual, Charles Crane, who's another big deal in the American Wall Street scene. And both of them had long-term political connections in Russia. Both of them just kind of, you know, happened to show, you know, Crane actually waltzes through Moscow about the time this deal is reached. And if you look at it, it's pretty evident that he's the one who actually negotiates the terms of release. And so they're let go. You don't get to see the other side of this. You don't see what the quid pro quo is. Because if these Americans accused or real spies are released, what was it that Hoover basically promised, and you find out pretty quickly what it was. What he, what he, the, the payoff for this was a thing called the American Relief Administration, the ARA, which was a, you know, the sort of early version of an NGO that goes into Soviet Russia, brings in foreign aid, food, helps prevent a famine, props up the regime. Yep, 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 yep. It was a slush fund. Yeah, and and that's that's Hoover's all behind that, and that's part of this whole idea. This is part of this whole system of go. So that's where the real diplomacy was taking place. So you see, officially, the United States, from 1917, from the advent of the Bolsheviks all the way really up to FDR in 1933, had no formal diplomatic relations diplomatic relations with the Soviet Union. They supposedly never talked to each other, yet they are talking to each other the entire time. And most of that is going through people like Hoover and Crane, who are, let's face it, businessmen, not politicians. Well, Hoover was a mining engineer, too. Yeah. Uh, you know, Sutton's, uh, you know, he, he was uh, uh, working at the uh, Hoover Institute at, at Stanford there. And they had, uh, you know, uh, put him to do this book, Western Technology and its Effect on, on the Soviets. And, you know, he gets to, he gets the first two volumes of that book out just fine. He gets to the third volume and the people at the Hoover Institute say, oh, Tony, we, we, we don't want to put that out right now. And, you know, Tony starts scratching his head and he doesn't understand why don't they want to put this out. And so he actually goes around them and, and puts it out as national suicide. And they, Hoover Institute tells Tony, they say, don't, don't break your rice bowl. And, and, and the basic thing was that he had found out that the more material that the North Vietnamese were using to, to fight the South Vietnamese and, and us there in the Vietnam War was being built in factories in Russia that had come from America. Some of them had ordered through Italy and whatnot. Some of them had American engineers in it. But you know, basically the positive is, is that the Vietnam War couldn't have been held without this behind the scenes uh, arming of them uh, from uh, uh, American uh, interests. 
This was part one. Part two, episode 71, will be posted next week.